and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's guest is Leo Polovitz, general partner at Sousa Ventures, a seed stage firm in Silicon Valley. Leo was one of the first dozen employees at LinkedIn and brings his experience with data and network effects to scale to invest in the next generation of foundational companies. His firms invest at the earliest stages, including in Robinhood and Flexport. In this conversation, we talked about moats, compound growth, position versus momentum, and balancing ego and perspective. Leo, welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, Leo, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show today and dive into a bunch of different topics uh, that I think really merit deeper dialogue. Um, things like moats, compound growth, reputations, and, and personal conviction. But before we do, tell us a little bit more about your background and how you ended up at SUSE. My background is, you know, I graduated from Caltech about 15 years ago where I studied computer science. And after graduating, I, I spent a few months at Microsoft, but I didn't really love it there. Uh, I was up near Seattle. And a couple months in, a mentor from one of my college internships, uh, he had co-founded a startup and he asked me if I wanted to join uh, when they were about a dozen people. And because I wasn't really liking my my work at Microsoft, um, I jumped on the chance. And I got really lucky because that startup turned out to be LinkedIn. And so I spent a couple of years there, you know, roughly from when they were about a dozen people to about 50 people. And I got to work on early versions of products like LinkedIn Groups and LinkedIn Jobs. And, you know, it was just like a really great learning experience. And I made a lot of connections and, and friends that I still have to this day. And, and after a couple of years, um, you know, at LinkedIn, I ended up joining Google, which was about 5,000 people at the time. And I was an early engineer on the payment fraud team there. So I spent about three years working on software that would identify things like stolen credit cards, fraudulent merchants, things like that. Um, and that was also a really interesting project. It was kind of my first exposure to uh, you know, the value of data and modeling and where you know, I think traditionally people really focused on the, on the algorithms. And at Google, I saw that having more data was actually you know, a really valuable thing that was often more important than the algorithms. And that's something that I think has informed my investing and kind of my, my viewpoint over the last 10 years. Um, and so I was at Google for about three years. It roughly quadrupled in size over that time, which is pretty insane since it started at 5,000 people. And I started to really miss the kind of the fun and atmosphere of working at a startup. So I interviewed at a bunch of places and ended up going to a company in LA called Factual, which is a location data provider. And they had a lot of interesting data problems to work on, and it was a really awesome early team. And so I ended up spending uh, you know, almost four years there as an engineer. And then towards the end of that, this is uh, late 2012, I started thinking about what to do next. And I'd worked at these two startups, LinkedIn and Factual, from kind of the 15 to 50 person stage. And I really liked that. And I was actually thinking of starting my own company, but I felt like I didn't know anything about that one to five person stage when you know it's just the founder or founders and they're just starting out. And so I wanted to learn more about that. And uh, I got really lucky because one of my colleagues at Factual was actually spinning out at that time. And she came up to me and basically said, hey, I'm going to leave soon too. And um, you know, me and a couple other people are going to start a seed fund that invests in startups uh, at their earliest stages. And uh, you know, so my colleague and, and the people she was starting this fund with were all on the business side in terms of backgrounds. And they wanted somebody technical to help do technical due diligence and look at kind of the technical aspects of companies and evaluate them on, on that side. And I thought this would be a great opportunity to uh, basically learn about those, you know, one, two, five-person startups uh, for, you know, six months or a year, and then I'd go start my own startup. And so I started doing that, and then, you know, 
over about a year, I realized I really loved the job and I wasn't sure I wanted to be a founder any longer and I felt like I really found my calling in venture capital. And so now I've been uh, a VC for about six years. Um, the fund that my friends and I started is called Sousa Ventures. It's a $50 million fund. And we invest in seed stage companies and we've been really fortunate to work with companies like uh, Robinhood and uh, Andela and Flexport in their earliest days. And it's just, it's just been a really awesome job that I really love. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that you mentioned that kind of the impetus of getting involved was technical due diligence. Um, because I, you know, I don't actually typically imagine tech diligence as a core discipline for early stage venture. I'm curious, you know, as you've been in the role, you know, for the last six years, do you find that you actually do much tech diligence in the early stages? This was definitely uh, a fast and, uh, you know, surprising learning for me when I started. So when I was starting out, you know, in the seed fund, I really thought that, you know, having an engineer on the team would be an interesting and unique thing for the fund because that's not something a lot of seed funds have. And so we thought that, you know, being able to diligence companies on the technical side would be a competitive advantage for us. And it turned out that was not really the case and basically for three reasons. And, you know, the, the first reason is that a lot of these companies in the early days, they're actually deliberately not trying to write the best code or the best software possible. They're, they're often writing prototypes or just like kind of quick throwaway code. And they just want to launch something to get feedback from users and, you know, figure out if they're building the right thing. And so I feel like it's, you know, it's not really uh, indicative of whether somebody's a good engineer if their goal is just to like write something and launch it as quickly as possible and they're deliberately not trying to, you know, engineer it in the best possible way. So I think first of all, like, so that, that kind of, uh, you know, the input data wasn't great because it wasn't really indicative of like how good a team was. Um, and I think the second thing we learned pretty quickly is the, the seed like fundraising market doesn't really support this level of diligence. And what I mean by that is a lot of seed funds and angel investors will write their checks after one or two or three meetings. And so the founders sort of, you know, have grown to expect that, which is I'll meet with somebody for, you know, two or three hours over a couple of weeks, and then they'll decide whether they want to invest, let's say, a quarter million dollars. And for us to go to the founder and say, okay, we've met, you know, for that two or three hours, and now we want to do like a three-hour deep dive with two of your engineers, a lot of founders would just sort of balk at that and say, hey, look, like, you know, all these other funds will write a check with a couple hours. Like, you're trying to take up a bunch of my engineering team's time. Like, time's really precious for us. Like, we don't really want to do this. So we saw a lot of kind of resistance when we, when we got, started getting deep into the technical side. So there's definitely pushback there. And I think that, you know, that made it hard to do tech due diligence. Um, and I would say, like, the kind of the most subtle reason that we learned over time of why tech diligence wasn't great early stages is actually, like, most of these companies we're looking at don't have a lot of technical risk. And so, you know, there are those rare companies where maybe they're trying to build a quantum computer or they're growing meat cells in a lab. And there's a lot of technical risk there. Like, there are a lot of technical challenges. And you really have to, you know, evaluate the team's technical ability, their expertise, make sure they're kind of, you know, up to the challenge that they're undertaking. Um, but for most companies, you know, if you're building a tool for salespeople or lawyers or, you know, maybe it's like a consumer social app, most of the time, like, the risk is not on the technical side. It's The risk is more around are you building the right thing or, like, do people actually want what you're trying to make? And so because of that, you know, even if we got really good at technical dil diligence, I think it's just it's something that doesn't produce a lot of value at seed stage because the technical side is not where the risks are in an investment. Um, so these days, I, you know, I don't really do much technical diligence because 
if something doesn't have technical risk, um, you know, there's no point of looking at that. And if something does have a lot of technical risk, like it's a quantum computing company, then usually we actually need to go find like a domain expert to take a look because I won't be deep enough on that one specific area. I think the market risk element you talked about is is an interesting insight, and I'm I'm curious to talk about that actually um, in in the context of your fund's thesis, which is you know moats. You guys spend a lot of time and a lot of thought process on um, on moats, and you know a lot of folks have talked about moats, their defensibility. It's a it's a common phenomenon, but I think you have a pretty interesting particular conviction and thesis around it. So you know before we dive into moats. Uh, I'd love to get just a baseline on, you know, how do you define a moat in, in 2018? So a moat is basically a sustainable competitive advantage. And by competitive advantage, I mean something that makes your product more valuable to your customers than the products of your competitors. You know, so maybe your product is faster, or it's cheaper, or has features that, you know, your competitors' products don't have. Um, so that's the competitive advantage part. And by sustainable, I mean that your competitors can't easily replicate that advantage. Um, and, and so just to give an example, you know, like let's say a bunch of companies are making pens for a dollar and they sell them for $2. Um, you know, one of those companies could mark their pens down to like $1.90. And you could say that's a competitive advantage because you know, customers would prefer the cheaper pen. But it's not really sustainable because all of the, that company's competitors can also mark their pens down at $1.90 and then you're just like you know, back to square one. Um, but on the other hand, if like some company you know creates a proprietary way to make pens for twenty cents and sell them for you know eighty cents, that's a really interesting position because now you know they have a proprietary process that's hard to copy, and it's also an advantage that you know when they're selling pens for eighty cents and their competitors you know cost them a dollar just to make a pen, um, I think that that's a really interesting place to be because like you have a competitive advantage where customers really prefer your product and your price. Uh, and your competitors can't catch up to you, uh, which is which is really great. And why do you think moats are so important today? So, uh, you know, as a baseline phenomenon, obviously makes a ton of sense from you know being a sustainable competitive advantage in business. But I think it's particularly I think it's a particularly interesting thought exercise in a software driven world. You know, customer bases have expanded, uh, but noise and complexity have as well. You know, number of copycats, tangential competitors, distribution channels. The complexity and, and the nuance of you know additional variables has, has also materially increased. So, how do you think about um, you know moats and kind of their importance in in a twenty eighteen type world? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I think I think moats are becoming increasingly important just because competition is you know fiercer than ever and can follow more quickly than ever. And you kind of see this in these in these trends of you know companies on the I think it was either the S and P or the Nasdaq stock exchange like. The amount of time companies spend, you know, on the Nasdaq keeps shrinking and shrinking, and so the turnover is just so high because I think, you know, competition is just so strong these days, and so the reason moats are important is a moat is basically means you're differentiated, so you somehow stand out from the pack, and then you can sustain that, which means like the pack can't easily just copy what you're doing and you know kind of consume you back into the pack. Um, and, and so what moats do is they allow you to keep a profit margin. So to kind of go to the, back to that pen example from um, you know the, the last question, you know if if a pen costs a dollar to make and you sell it for two, um, you know and everyone knows how to make pens for a dollar, there'll be some competitor that says, hey, you know I don't need to sell it for two dollars. I could sell it for dollar eighty. And maybe someone else says, well I don't need a dollar eighty. I need a dollar sixty. 
And, and if you kind of extend that to its logical conclusion, pretty soon everyone's charging, you know, making pens for a dollar and charging a dollar and a penny. And that's just not really good business because like nobody has an advantage and so profits just go to zero. And I think the power of a moat is if you're making something unique, you know, maybe, maybe your pen is really awesome so you could sell it for $5 or $10 or $100. And because nobody else can copy it, there'll be some customers that they really need whatever unique attributes you're selling and they can't get them anywhere else. And so they'll be willing to pay, you know, the 10 or $100 for your product. Um, and so, so the moat is what lets you maintain a nice healthy profit margin instead of your profits eroding to zero over time. Yeah, I think the sustainable piece as well as um, defining it the right way is actually really important when you think about moats. I think, you know, too often moats are often you know, mischaracterized either with, you know, broad brushes um, uh, or with reference to things that actually aren't moats, like how you described price in, in the pen example. You know, what have you found to be the characteristics that define great moats when you've been looking at early stage companies? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's a little bit redundant, but I, I think the biggest most critical part of a moat is that it's hard to copy. And so I think a lot of times people mischaracterize things that, you know, they see as competitive advantages either for themselves or their companies, uh, but often those competitive advantages are very short term. And so what I mean by that is a lot of times, you know, if I ask a founder what their moat is, they might say like, well, we work really hard or like, you know, we're like, we're, we're just like, we spend a lot more time on this than anyone else. And I think short term, you know, if you're working like 70 hour weeks and someone else is working 50, like that, maybe that, maybe that gives you a bit of an advantage. But the truth is like other companies can hire people that work hard or they can hire more people or they can hire people in cheaper areas. So I think just saying like, you know, the number of hours we put into something is a moat is like, that's usually not a very good moat. Um, Another example of something that's not a good moat most of the time is industry expertise. So sometimes, you know, I'll meet a founder of a real estate startup and I'll say, what's your sustainable competitive advantage? And they'll say, well, we have an engineer and a real estate expert and a lot of the teams here are just engineers and don't know real estate. And again, that, that's a good short-term advantage, but, you know, people can hire a real estate expert. So it's not something that will last for a long time. So I think, I think the first and kind of most critical part of uh, a good moat is that it actually has to be hard to copy. So, you know, maybe it's some IP or maybe it's a proprietary data set or something that, you know, people can't just get or buy or develop easily themselves. Um, and then I think for the best moats, they're not just hard to copy, but they become harder and harder to copy over time. So you can almost say that they're compounding moats. So, you know, with, with like a non-compounding moat that sort of stays a fixed strength, like let's say IP, um, basically, like that moat is roughly the same over time. So if it takes, you know, $10 million in research to figure out how to develop a better pen, then, you know, that's a lot of money. But if, if, the, if the profit and kind of the return is high enough, a lot of people can spend $10 million to try to develop a better pen. So it's not really like a moat that gets stronger over time. Um, but on the other hand, you know, like if we look at something like Facebook, I think copying a company like Facebook with all of its network effects and data on users uh, becomes harder and harder over time. So maybe when Facebook launched, you know, maybe six months in, it would take a few million dollars to try to copy them and unseat them. But a couple years later, I bet it was, you know, a billion dollars. And today, it's, maybe it's like a trillion dollars. Uh, because convincing you know three billion people or however many users they have to switch over uh, is is a ridiculously hard task, and so I think you want moats like that where maybe it's a data set, maybe it's a network that you know just gets stronger and more valuable over time, where as your company grows, it becomes more and more difficult for your competitors to try to catch up to you. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I think there's certain things, especially like the Facebook example that you just mentioned, definitely hard to extrapolate through. But you can see at least, I think, prescriptively, you can see kind of a a linear logic from the perspective that at scale network effects, you know, would would come through. Um, I think one of the interesting counterintuitive proxies for a strong moat that you've commented on in, in the past is the inverse correlation between product experience and user growth and retention. And, you know, that was something in response to, you know, Fred Destin tweeting about LinkedIn's product experience and how it's become, you know, subpar, but at the same time, you know, we all use it kind of all day, every day. What are some of the other non-obvious variable relationships um, that that signify strong and underlying moats that you've seen in your experience? Yeah, that's a good question. So earlier I mentioned that I think moats are really important because they help you charge a premium and make more margin. And I would say there's a little more nuance there where, you know, it's not just that you can charge more money. It's more like users will give things up in order to use your product because your product has some unique value proposition they can't get anywhere else. And so giving things up could mean paying more money, but it might mean something like, you know, dealing with worse customer service. And you see it with a company like Google where the product's amazing um, and they have really terrible customer service and people are okay with that because they can't, I mean, they might not like it, but they put up with it because, you know, Google's product can't be beat or, or at least no one's beat it so far. Um, or, you know, there's companies like LinkedIn where there's not a good alternative professional social network to LinkedIn. And so even though their product, like the user experience isn't great, feels like it's been stagnating for a while, people put up with it because there's nowhere else they can go. And so I think, you know, if you have strong competition and your product is not that special, then if your price is too high or your UX is poor or your customer service sucks, customers will just go to your competitors. But if you make something valuable that no one else can make, um, then customers will put up with a lot because they can't get that value anywhere else. And so I think good signs of moats are these things like customers paying a premium or customers enduring bad customer service or you know customers enduring like a product that's not really evolving. And these are things people usually don't put up with. Uh, but if you have something really unique that others can't copy, then people will put up with that. And so I think that's a signal. Yeah, I think the compounding element that kind of underlies the the, the relationship you just described is interesting as well. You know, I think the concept of moats and defensibility really comes to life with the concept of compound growth and, you know, why moats and compound growth over a sustained period of time is so powerful, like you were describing, you know, in the Facebook example or even, you know, in the Google example. Historically, you know, you've, you've talked and, and a lot of folks in the market have talked about, you know, how SaaS and, and compound growth is underappreciated, really more so from a business model perspective. I'm actually interested in thinking about it, uh, you know, compound growth and its interplay into personal growth. It's it's a little bit less intuitive, but I think the same principles of compound growth when applied to self are, you know, materially impactful. Uh, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, why do you think it's easier to understand the benefits of compound growth in the context of company building, you know, versus personal self? So I actually think compound growth is not that intuitive, you know, almost anywhere. Um, like whether it's the, the personal side or the company side. And I think a lot of it is because compounding feels so slow when you're in the moment and it really pays off a lot later. And so, for example, you know, let's say you put like $50 into an investment account that grows you know, 2% per month. Like in that first month, you make a dollar and you barely notice it. Um, but you know, if you wait a couple of years, maybe you're making $10 a month and that's like a little bit better. And after 20 or 30 years, maybe it's $100 a month. But then if you wait 50 years, 
you know, you're going to be making like 100 grand or like 300 grand a month or something like that, which is such a ridiculous amount given that you put in 50. And I think that's the part that people don't appreciate that like in 50 years, you're going to make, you know, 100 grand a month on this investment. But in year three, it's like a dollar a month or $2 a month. And it just feels so small. And whenever you're in the moment, like it's really hard to focus on the thing that's five decades away or five years away because, you know, what you're seeing is like what happened this week, what happened last week. And I think this is really true on the personal growth side too. So, you know, like whether it's building a network or learning a new skill or, you know, these efforts, like they compound nonlinearly. And so like, for example, if you're building a personal network and you know 10 people, you know, and you're trying to think of like, well, how can I help people in my network? There's maybe like 50-ish connections among those 10 people. And so maybe there's, there's a pair of people that you can help, maybe two, but there's not gonna be that many. Um, but if you grow your network from 10 to 100 people, now you can make like 5,000 connections between them. And now there's probably a bunch of things you can do. And, and if you know, you know 1,000 people, you can make half a million connections. And now you're going to have like so many opportunities to you know, connect this person that needs dental surgery to this amazing dentist or you know, connect these two people that both want to start a company and they both like financial services and you know, they, like, they're both skiers or something. And so you, like, as your network grows, like, the amount of opportunity that you have to help people and for them to potentially help you grows so quickly. But then in like day one, when you know, you know, your network is like six people or 12 people, it feels like nothing. And as you go from 12 to 14, it doesn't really feel like you made that much progress. And so I think it's really hard to see like, what will this be like when it's you know, 10 times bigger or 100 times, or 100 times bigger um, compared to you know, where it is today. And I think that's where people have a hard time thinking about compound growth. Yeah, I think it's especially, I like the way you framed it. I think it's actually, you know, incredibly underappreciated, even more so when it comes to particular types of, you know, asymmetric initiatives. So, you know, building your own personal brand or voice, for an example, you know, one of the things you were mentioning, I think is actually a good example to, to think through or, or kind of play out. So, you know, as, as backstory, you and I met over Twitter, right? Many of the folks I actually interview on, on the show, I, you know, tweet with and at over a period of time and have them come on. And I think things like, you know, writing, interviewing, they can all feel like really small projects, um, that you can argue whether or not they're a great use of time in the moment, you know, but over a period of time, they have significant compounding effects and, um, you know, consistent weekly, you know, writing over five years, let's take the five-year horizon that you were mentioning, you know, can produce over 250 articles, right? Or similarly, an interview a week over, you know, a decade period, you're talking about, you know, 500 different folks that you've interviewed. Now, I'm curious to hear, you know, your thoughts on the phenomenon. You talked about it a little bit um, in, in the previous question. I'm curious if it, you know, switches um, or, or extrapolates even more with uh, asymmetric initiatives. Yeah, I, I really agree with you that, you know, I think, I think this kind of compounding is really underappreciated uh, for things like writing or creating a personal brand or things like that. Um, I think, I think writing is actually really interesting because every article you post or every tweet that you write, you know, for lack of a better term, basically increases like the surface area where people can find you. you know, so if you have like one blog post, then maybe a small number of search queries will get people to find it. But if you have 100, there's you know, 100 times as many search queries. And so you, you, the more you write, the more you increase the chances of people actually just discovering what you're saying. And then I think also the more you write, like the higher the chances that people, you know, look at what else you've written and become fans of yours. Um, I, I think it's a little bit like a musician, you know, like if they create one song and you listen to it, then you leave. And if they have an album, then maybe you listen to the album and you like one or two songs, but you're kind of more a fan of the songs than the artist. 
Um, but if they have like you know 30 albums and you listen to a song and then you listen to an album and you listen to a few albums and you really like it, you become a fan of the artist instead of the work. And that's like a that's a really powerful place for the creator to be because you know now that they have an audience and a following, like every new album they create or every new concert they have, uh, you know, there's a, basically a line of people just waiting for it. And I think it's the same on the writing side. You know, if you if you write a few blog posts, that's great. And if you have dozens or hundreds, you know, pe as people discover them and they become fans of not just a specific blog post, but of what you're saying and how you think about the world, you basically develop an audience of people that, you know, are interested in what you're going to say next. And, you know, maybe if you ask for help on something, they're eager to help you because they, they really like, you know, the content you've shared with them. And, and I think that that's a really valuable asset to have. And back to the previous point, you know, and the last question is, I think the compounding of that is really hard to endure in the early days because it might be that, you know, your first blog post, you spend hours on it, and you're trying to make it perfect and you get like 15 views. And, and then next week, you know, you spend hours on that one and you get like 18 views and it's mostly just your friends. And it feels like you're not really making any progress, um, you know, even though maybe it's like 20% more views technically. And what happens is if you, if you stick to this for years, you know, maybe after like three years, Instead of 15 views per blog post, you get like 15,000. Uh, but when you're writing that first or third or eighth one, it, that feels really far away. And so I think if you can make it through that early prof of like discouragement um, and you get to you know, your 30th post or your 100th post, I think there's a lot of value that you're going to unlock over time. I think it's really interesting. I like the I like the way you just frame that, and I think it's interesting too in terms of applying it to you know reputation, right? So you you have a pinned tweet. Uh, about how to build a reputation. I want to read it because I think it's I think it's really insightful. Um, you, know, you have five steps: one, meet lots of people; two, be as helpful to them, be helpful to as many of them as possible; three, don't screw anyone over; four, play the long game and don't be transactional; and five, repeat one through four forever. And in many ways, it's insightful. In many ways, it feels like common sense. Uh, but I think like compound growth, it can often be unintuitive. Um, you know, that is the results take a while to bear out, but once they do, it's extremely powerful. You know, is that your read of why, you know, this kind of concept of reputation, you know, how to build it is challenging for folks or do you think it's something else? And I, I'm curious, you know, what really inspired you to not only write that tweet, but, you know, really kind of pin it and, and have it be, um, you know, almost the cover of, of your social media presence. I, I definitely see in my industry that there's different kinds of people. Some of them are very transactional, and so they're sort of like, I'll help you if you'll help me, or I'm not going to help you if I don't think you could help me. And there's others that I think are more relationship-driven, so they're not thinking about, you know, what's my ROI on doing this favor for you? I think they're just like, hey, I like you. I've had a lot of privileges and breaks in my life. Like, I want to pay it forward to other people. And I, I like that second philosophy a lot more, and I fall into it a lot more. And I think there's, in my life, a lot of the things, um, a lot of the breaks I've had have just been through kind of, you know, I'd say like kind of like increasing the surface area of luck. So just trying to be a good person to the people I know and the people I meet um, and not really expecting anything in return. But over time, it seems like a lot of things that, you know, if you do something nice for people, eventually it often, uh, you know, they'll return the favor someday. Um, and so I really like that that philosophy of like you're kind of planting seeds and some of them will sprout and some won't um, and you're not really expecting you know any specific person to owe you one just because you did something nice for them uh, but just by doing lots of nice things for a lot of people over time you really read uh, dividends on that um, 
so, so that's kind of the inspiration. Like, I really like that philosophy, and I really believe in it. Um, and to your point, I think the things that make this hard is, first of all, you know, it does take a long time to see results. So if you're, you know, if you think that maybe, like, you do a favor for somebody, and maybe within a few years there's a 50% chance they'll return the favor somehow, you know, if you help, like, five people, it might take you a year or two before, like, the first person comes back and says, hey, I think I can help you with something now. Um, so I think in the early days, it might be that, you know, you're trying to help people, but you don't really see the results of that for a while. It's more like, you know, hopefully you just feel good about being a good friend. Um, but over time, you know, if you've helped hundreds or thousands of people, then I think uh, you, you really reap the benefits. Um, and so I think it's just one of those things where if you stick to it, uh, you get a lot of benefit. Um, and I, I would say, like, I think two reasons that I think Two other reasons that I think uh, this might be tough for people to, to start doing. One is Adam Grant has this great book called Give and Take, where he kind of postulates that there's people that are takers that you know are more transactional and you know they're really trying to kind of extract value from people, um, and then there's givers who are more about you know trying to provide value to people and kind of living by this philosophy that like a rising tide lifts all boats. So if they help people around them, like it'll lift their boat eventually. Um, and so I think there is something to that in my experience. So I think maybe for some people, helping others feels really natural, and for others, it feels very, you know, maybe inefficient or effective because they're not sure what kind of ROI they'll get in the short term. And I think the other place that might trip, uh, the other place that might trip people up is that when you're just starting out in your career or you know, kind of your adult life, I think there's so many things you can do for personal development. And you know, taking 10 or 20% of that time that you can be using to maybe level up your skills or something like that, uh, and dedicating that to helping other people when their return is not immediate, I think that's a hard thing to do. Um, I, I think it's sort of like making a long-term investment where you know, it really compounds in year five or year 10, but you're, you're, you're taking the sacrifice today where you're giving up some of your spending money and putting it aside. And I think that's, just, that's, that's not an easy decision for people to make. Talk about the framework a little bit more kind of in the, in the context of tech, because I think if you apply it to venture and you unbundle some of the components and, and try to think about the edge cases, I think you see, you know, elements of the framework that are probably less controversial and then kind of the element that's a little bit harder. You know, the, the first kind of three components, meet lots of people, be as helpful, be helpful to as many as possible, don't screw anyone over. I think generally for the most part, you know, hopefully, <laughs> generally for the most part, people would agree with that. I think, you know, four, play the long game and don't be transactional is probably the one that trips most people up. Um, and, you know, we, we talked about some of the elements about why that's counterintuitive via compounding growth, et cetera. I'm, I'm curious kind of in the, in the venture and tech context, you know, there's, there's a lot of debate, um, you know, today on how to allocate time with portfolio companies. And especially if you're a seed stage fund, a series A fund, you know, most of your financial returns are going to be consolidated in a few companies. You know, Fred Wilson, I think, has a really great saying, which is you make your financial return on a few of the, your winners, but you make your reputation and how you work with your companies uh, on, on the companies that don't win. So how do you, how do you think about that kind of at SUSE and, and through the culture of your guys' fund? Yeah, so I, we definitely really strongly agree with that, with that sentiment. Um, and I think one reason you know, it's kind of what we were just talking about, which is that like careers are really long and you just never know how like helping somebody or, you know, being a good partner or someone could pay off someday. You know, so like, for example, maybe like a founder's current company doesn't work out, but they remember that you were supportive and they ask you to back their next company. And that one turns out to be like a really huge success. 
um, or you know maybe that founder's company didn't work out, but they're willing to be like a really good reference for you when you're trying to you know convince other founders to work with you. Um, and on the flip side, you know it might be that if you treat somebody poorly, uh, you know hey their company didn't work out, so you kind of feel like maybe you didn't lose anything financially, uh, you know in the future. But what might happen is like maybe the next time you know you're meeting with the founder of I don't know Airbnb, and that founder happens to know the founder you screwed over and ask for personal reference. You know, maybe you miss out on your chance to invest in Airbnb because you like screwed somebody over five years ago. So I think there's just a really, you know, there's a good kind of ROI long-term benefit to to being a good player in the ecosystem, and you know, treating people well, like being dependable and reliable, and being supportive even if things aren't going well. And then I think the other part is almost more of like a moral argument, which is I think just being supportive of people is the right thing to do. Um, you know, you're both making a commitment to each other as a founder and investor that, you know, you believe in each other, you want to work together, you believe in the idea that the founder is working on. And sometimes you're wrong about the idea, um, but I think there's still like the interpersonal relationship to consider and the fact that, you know, the founder is like really putting their heart and soul into this idea and this business. And I don't think it's the right thing to do to just walk away if the business isn't going well. I think the right thing to do is to just be as supportive as possible and make the process as easy and as, you know, as, as painless as possible and to, you know, make the ups better and make the downs less bad. And so I think, I think regardless of ROI, I just think this is the right thing to do. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think the moral argument is the, is the interesting side of it, which is you can, you can kind of treat it from an ROI on career perspective, but I think some of the foundational layer on it, uh, on, on whether you kind of run your life this way is, um, you know, what, what your kind of moral compass dictates. And, and I think it actually probably leads to a, to a happier journey, um, you know, throughout the process, even if it's a slightly unoptimized, uh, you know, destination. I want to, I want to switch off of the, the reputation side and, and actually get to, you know, two other kind of characteristics. You, you tweeted recently about ego and perception and how the combination of the two can lead people to take the wrong step. Your, your tweet was, you know, people put too much weight on their ego and how others perceive them. It's a loss when someone doesn't take an amazing job or pursue a unique opportunity just because it doesn't come with the right title or because they're worried about what their peers will think. And that tweet to me was really interesting because it takes me back to a time when, you know, when I was in law school um, and, and we had the CEO of a, of a large Fortune 500 come in and, and was giving a talk. And he had this great quote that I'll never forget, which is, you don't get abnormal outcomes by doing normal things. And he was essentially describing the model of trying to prescriptively plan your life without ever, you know, quote unquote, jumping off the line or, or you know, taking what in the moment seems to be a step back. Expand a little bit more on, on your tweet and, you know, what you were thinking about when you wrote it. Every company I work with is, you know, constantly trying to hire people. And sometimes those founders ask me to try to help close a candidate where I can talk to the candidate, you know, tell them why I'm excited about the company, why I think they should join. And... I've now talked to you know dozens of dozens of people like that, and many of them end up joining the startups I work with, and a lot of them decide to pass for different reasons. And I think a lot of times, like the reasons, if somebody does decide to pass, um, they have a good reason. Like maybe they like another job more, and or maybe you know the maybe the compensation difference is so dramatic that it really changes their life. But I've also seen people pass for what I think are reasons more of like ego or you know caring what, about what their peers think. So, you know, maybe they're making like, maybe they have an offer for, you know, $175,000 from one company and $165,000 from a, a company that's a better fit for them. And they will go to the, you know, the company that pays a little bit more 
um, you know, because like they're really stuck on that like that money figure. Um, or maybe you know they really want to be a senior director, and this company can only make them a director. But it's a much better opportunity, and the person ends up passing because they really care about that job title. And you know, honestly, I think there's times where like trying to get a higher job title can be really valuable. You know, maybe like once you're a senior director or a VP, it makes it easier to get future VP jobs. Uh, but if it's more about you know thinking about well, what will my peers think if I move from senior director to director? I think it's just the wrong thing to optimize for because, you know, you're optimizing for other people's perception over just like what makes you happy or what makes you fulfilled. And I think there's like one of my favorite quotes, it's this David Foster Wallace quote, and I'm probably going to mangle it, but it's along the lines of you'll worry less about what other people think about you when you realize how little they think about you. And in a way, it's like a little bit of a depressing quote because, you know, you realize like everyone's just absorbed in their own things. But in a way, it's really liberating because it means that like you can mess up or like you can take a lower job title or you know you can you can do a lot of things and like it'll be kind of a flash in the pan in other people's eyes. Like no one's really sitting there five years later thinking like, oh man, like Ramin took this job where he was you know a manager instead of a director. What was he thinking? It's like nobody really thinks about that stuff. It's like all that matters is like did you do the right thing for yourself and did you take the opportunity that you know is the best one for you. Um, and so that's kind of what, what the tweet was talking about, which is, you know, I think people should really focus on what do they want, like where do they think they'll, you know, get more fulfillment or more enjoyment out of a career or, you know, like what do they think would be a better learning opportunity and not what do they think would look better on their resume because I think that stuff is actually, you know, a little bit overvalued. Yeah, I think it's really interesting too because I, I think the idea intrinsically relates to the relationship between position and momentum. And, and I think too often times you know, folks systematically overweight position and underweight momentum. And I, I think that's largely because momentum isn't visible from a snapshot like a position is. So, you know, to your point, to use your example, the 165K job um, uh, versus the 175K job or the director versus the senior director. But it's very different going into a company like LinkedIn, right, and experiencing, you know, rapid hyper growth over a three-year period, even if you started with a little bit lower of a, of a starting point you know, versus going to a company that's going nowhere where maybe you started a little bit higher, right? This, this kind of feels like a direct relation to what we were, you know, just talking about. How do you think about that kind of position and momentum uh, relationship? I think people definitely overvalue position relative to momentum or opportunity a lot of times. Um, and I, I see this a lot, you know, what will happen is somebody will get an offer from, let's say, like a company like Square, where, you know, they can join as a I don't know, engineering manager when the team is 20 people. And, or they can get, you know, a position at Google where they get paid, you know, 30% more. And I think a lot of times people really focus on that 30%. And what they don't realize is, you know, if you don't believe in Square when it's early, then it's probably correct to, to go work at Google. But if you think Square is going to be a big company, then maybe you're taking a 30% pay cut right now. But in five years, you know, you transition from engineering manager to like VP of engineering or engineering director. And on your resume, it says you helped this, you know, iconic company grow from, you know, 30 people to 800 people or whatever, whatever size it grows to. And you get a lot more credit for that. And you also end up often making a lot more money off of stock options or promotions or things like that. And, and people really look at like, well, what's the, what's the offer today versus what could it grow into over the next couple of years? 
it's particularly interesting because I think I think like compound growth, right? It's it's the same kind of underlying principle that's counterintuitive, which is once you can make the mental jump to think about kind of position versus momentum, compound growth versus linear growth. I think from a mental model perspective, you uh, you know your your thinking just kind of opens up to different possibilities as opposed to kind of a linear steady state in which you know position or kind of a higher starting point will always naturally trump um, you know the the alternative option. Yeah, I really agree with that. I think a lot of times when you're thinking about your career, your personal growth, you know, it's really good to think about what do I think would have more impact in five or ten years uh, versus what I think will have the biggest impact, you know, in the next six months. And and obviously sometimes maybe you're in like maybe your situation in life is that you really got to think about the next six months. Like maybe you know maybe you're about to have a baby or something, or you have a bunch of college loans, and you really do want to optimize for salary. And that's totally okay if you're you know if that's if that's the decision you explicitly make. Um, but I don't think that's an ex- the decision you should implicitly make if you know for example like you're not really trying to optimize for salary. Uh, and you really want to optimize for like wealth over 10 years, then usually optimizing for salary for the next six months is like not the best approach to do that. And you really want to think about, you know, the 5, 10, 20 year timeline. Yeah, I really like the framing of kind of the 10, 20 year timeline. And as we round out the conversation, I actually want to refer to, you know, TweetStorm that I thought was really interesting that Eric Torenberg led a, a few weeks ago. It turned out to be a really interesting thread, which was, you know, more or less along the lines of, you know, what skills, industries, or concepts that look foolish today, you know, do you think will be commonplace in the next 10 years? And kind of keeping in the spirit of our conversation as opposed to, you know, industries or concepts, um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the skills kind of portion of that question. Yeah, so I, you know, to be honest, I don't have a really strong opinion on this, but I do think the topic we covered earlier, which was writing online, I think that actually is a skill that's, you know, starting to be more and more encouraged, but I do feel like it's still on the fringes. So maybe 10 years ago, you had a few people that were writing a lot, and a lot of those people, you know, like today, that's like the Fred Wilsons of the world in venture capital, where like they're really famous and, you know, they're almost like celebrities in their industry. And then, so that was maybe like 10 years ago, and I feel like in the last three to five years, you've started to see a lot more. I don't think micro-influencer is the right word, but sort of like mini-celebrities where, you know, it's somebody with like 100 blog posts on a topic and maybe it's not a, maybe it's kind of a niche topic so not a lot of people know about it, but the ones that do like start thinking like, oh, this person's an expert in, you know, supply chains or, or personal development or, you know, whatever. And I think, I think there are more and more of those people now where, you know, they have a following of like 10,000 or 50,000 people on Twitter or on the blog. And, and I think those people have sort of like unlocked a secret a few years before everyone else, which is that, you know, writing online really compounds, you know, your personal brand, your audience, like your opportunities in the future. And I think being able to write online and especially to, you know, pick a topic or intersection of topics where either no one else is writing about them or no one else is looking at them uh, the same way that you do. Um, I think finding opportunities like that and really, you know, uh, trying to build an online presence in those areas is going to be recognized as like a really good, uh, effective way to build a long-term career. And so I think that's something that'll get bigger and bigger over the next few years as a trend. Leo, this has been, you know, a really interesting conversation and I'm glad you were able to make the time. I, you know, I definitely learned a lot and I, I really enjoyed talking through, you know, your thoughts on moats, compounding, 
reputation, you know, skills to think about over the, over the next decade. So, you know, thanks again for joining us. Really enjoyed having you on today. Yeah. Thanks so much, Romina. It was a real pleasure to be on the show.